again as we always do, that as we come to your word, that your Holy Spirit will be guiding us, opening our minds, opening our hearts to be instructed, to be corrected, to be rebuked and taught by your word. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I think uh, one of the great things about doing uh, Christian work is to actually see people come to faith, to see them saved, to see them grow in their faith and knowledge of Jesus. But at the same time, uh, doing Christian ministry can also be filled with a lot of very sad things. And I distinctly remember one of the sad things I remember was this Indian man. I can still remember him. He was a tall fellow. I can't remember his face very well, but he was an intelligent fellow. He was a government scholar. And he had become a Christian. He was very excited about Jesus after going through the book of Mark. But then as we finished the book of Mark and we went on to some book in the Old Testament, he had changed. And somewhere along the line, he said to me, I don't want to become a Christian anymore. And I asked him what happened. And I was a bit shocked that he had decided not to be a Christian so quickly. He said that he was unhappy that uh, God uh, was actually a judging God and an angry God in the Old Testament. And the God that he really wanted to believe in was a loving God, a God who was uh, the God of, in the book of Mark, where he was really gracious and loving and merciful. And uh, he said, I don't want to have that sort of judging, angry God anymore, so I don't want to listen anymore. So he left church and I never saw him again. Now, I think that the great temptation that we can have is that as we look at Romans chapter 9, we can have that same sort of attitude as the Indian man. In the sense where when we come to the Bible, we can sort of say, I don't want to believe in that sort of God. I don't want to believe God is like that. And I refuse to listen to what the Bible describes about God. Or we become indifferent and we say, I don't really care what the Bible says about God. I want to pick and choose how I see God. But I always remember what they told me in theological college in the sense where we cannot be God and choose to frame God in our own image, in our own understanding. We cannot put God into our little box. But rather, every time we come to God's Word, instead we are changed by God's Word to understand better who God really is. So we don't put God into a little box, but rather as we come to God's Word, we see God as He really is. And we have to accept God as He really is. We cannot sort of pretend uh, for God to be a different sort of person. Actually, I should give you this illustration that just came to mind. I always remember, right? Imagine, you see, in my wallet, I have a picture of my wife, okay? It's really old, old picture, right? Now imagine if, 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 I, if I had in my wallet a picture of... Uh, how's a very famous actress? Huh? Huh, who? Angelina Jolie, Angelina Jolie right? Then I say, hey, why do you have a picture of Angelina Jolie in your wallet? And I said, no, 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 that's not Angelina Jolie, that's Cheryl, my wife. He said, no, no, but it looks like Angelina Jolie. I said, well, actually, that's, that's the way I would like to view my wife, right? But she does not really like that. I, I don't even know whether the speakers are on in the cry room, right? Sorry, okay. But you see, that's the problem. You see, we can come to the Bible and we, 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 we shape an image of God that we want Him to be rather than accepting God for who He really is. And I think as we come to today's passage, this is going to be the difficulty for us, whether we can really listen to what God is saying about Himself. So, today we're coming back to the book of Romans, and we haven't done it for quite a a few uh, months now, and we've done chapter 1 to 8. So we need a bit of background to to come to chapter 9, and ask ourselves, why does does Romans chapter 9 talk this way, right? So we began by um, finding out that in Romans chapter 1 and 2, that God has said that all humanity are sinful. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, male, female, whatever it is, we are all sinful. 
And as a result, God says that every single person deserves God's anger and wrath, and rightly so, because we are all sinful. But God sent His Son, Jesus, as an atonement to sort of like, as a magnifying glass, take all the judgment that is due to people and magnify it into Jesus. He also learned from the, the early chapters that because we are now in Jesus Christ, we move out of Adam, the race of Adam, into the new union with Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are now in the kingdom of God. But the problem is that we still live in the in-between times, right? Even though, yes, we belong to Jesus Christ, we belong to the new kingdom of God, but yet we struggle with our own sinfulness. We struggle with the old flesh. But God gave us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit helps us to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, Romans chapter 8 is very important, right? Because Romans chapter 8 was to assure us that no matter what happens to us, no matter what persecution there is, no matter what pressure is brought to bear on us, that we still are saved because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. If you remember, that's the main message of Romans chapter 8. Okay, So once we are in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus. Not death, not, 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 depriva- not, not uh, what do you call it, uh, deprivation, not uh, hardship. Nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus. Because we know that in Jesus, God has shown his ultimate love to us. Now this is where Romans chapter 9 comes in. Because in Romans chapter 9, we are faced with, or anyway, we are not really faced with it because we don't really care, but, but Paul and his audience are faced with a very crucial question. And this is the question that Paul comes up with. The question is, why then are there so few Jews who are saved? Right? So Paul says, right, I wish in my heart with great sorrow and unceasing anguish that I wish that I myself could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my own race. Right? So the Romans, the Roman Christians, when they receive this letter and they look around the church and they look around here, they say, where are all the Jewish people? How come the, the church is all made out of all these Gentile people? Where are all the Jews? Because surely, as you look in this passage, God had promised to love them. God had promised that he would be their father and they would be his people. So can we trust God? Right? Because God had made the same promises to the Jewish people. Now he's making us these promises that he will always love us in Jesus. Can we trust God? Because if you look around, where are all the Jewish people? Where are the promises of God to the Jews? And in fact, in, and if you look here in verse uh, 7 onwards, the the what do you call it? The Jews had so many more things going for them, right? So let's read with me. First of all, they were adopted as sons. Okay, so if you look up here in Exodus chapter four, God had said to the people when He took them out of Egypt, right? Let my son go so that they may worship me, right? So they were adopted as God's real children. They were given. Uh, the divine glory. So when they were led out of Egypt, God's presence was always among the Israelites. And when they built the temple, God's presence was there in Jerusalem. And then it says there that they would receive the covenant. So God had given them the promises through Abraham and also through Moses. They had received the law. They had the temple and they had the promises given to them. 
Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them are traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praise. Amen. So not only did they have the temple, not only did they have the promises of God, they had the same blood flowing through their veins as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So then the question is, why is it God doesn't seem to have been faithful in the promises to them? Why is it more, not more of them became Christian? Right? So in a way, today, when we look around, we don't look at Israel and see it as a Christian state. When we look at Israel, we see it as a Jewish state. They still worship God only through the Old Testament. They don't recognize Jesus. So then the question that's asked is, what happened to the promises of God? Right? Can God be trusted? Can God's promises in chapter 8 actually be relied upon? And that's where the question really centers in Romans chapter 9. And that's why verse 6 starts addressing all those issues. Right? It is not as though God's word had failed. Right? It's not as if God's promises had failed. It's not as if God is unreliable. For not all who had descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offering. So this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. But yet before the twins were born, I had done anything good or bad in order that God's promised election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So what happens here is that God, through uh, Paul makes a very good point. He says, look, not everyone who is Jewish, ethnically Jewish, culturally Jewish, racially Jewish, physically Jewish, or was born into the right neighborhood, is a Jew is a person who receives the promises of God, is a person who belongs to the kingdom of God. And as an example, he goes back right to the very, very beginning of the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation began with Abraham. Okay, So he says, let's look at Abraham. As uh, Nick, I remember, preached on uh, Romans, uh, Genesis chapter 12. Remember the promises to Abraham? Okay, What were the three promises? Land, children, Right, the great nation, and blessings to many people. But, from the very first generations, there was a selection process, a winning, winnowing process. So it says right in the first generation, Abraham had two children. Okay, the first two children. Right? So, Abraham, if you remember, we, we, we never got to this in Genesis. He, um, he first of all had uh, sex with the, the servant, Hagar. And as a result, they had Ishmael, the first child. But later, God said, look, you know, that's not the way I told you to do it. I told you that, you know, you will have many children with your wife, right? You can't shortcut this process sort of thing, right? There's no, uh, what do you call it? Surrogate mother or something, okay? So God told Abraham to uh, have a child conceive through Sarah. And then they had another child, Isaac. Okay? Now, if you would think about it in terms of uh, pure bloodline, 
both Ishmael and Isaac are from the blood of Abraham. Both of them rightly have a share in the promises of God. And in fact, because Ishmael is older, theoretically the older child also has more of a right to the promises of God. But then actually God said to Abraham right from the very start, right, that the promises that he gave to uh, Abraham would only come to Isaac. But not only that, in the next generation, so keep your eye on this guy Isaac, okay? In the next generation, Isaac had a wife and the wife was Rebekah. And Rebekah again had two children, Esau the elder and Jacob the younger. Now, usually in the ancient world, even in a quite, uh, uh, I guess, uh, traditional Chinese family, who gets the, the biggest inheritance? The eldest son, right? The eldest son usually gets the biggest inheritance. But God doesn't act that way, right? Because God said, Esau, I hated. Jacob, I loved. And not only that, what makes it even more, I guess, unexpected, was what it says there in verse 11. Even before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, God had already decided who was going to receive the promises of God. Now that's really shocking, right? And you sort of think, hey, that's really unfair, right? It's like, hey, you know, imagine you, you're like born in the womb and, uh, and God already decided that, that, you know, you were not going to receive inheritance and somebody else was going to receive inheritance. Don't you think that's unfair? Do you think that's unjust? Yes or no? Yes, we all think it's unfair, right? See, and God knows that you're thinking like that. Because in verse 14, right, that's exactly what we expect people to say. In verse 14 it says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? Right? Is God, you know, doing something that which, which is just not fair at all? But then it says not at all, right? For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Right? It does not depend, therefore, on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, this is a very, very important principle. right? So imagine I'm driving down the road, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm driving and I, and I do something wrong. Like, okay, I, maybe I'm driving too fast. Maybe I cut too many lanes. I didn't signal or something, right? And the policeman calls me over. But then the policeman says to me, Oh, you know, I'm feeling good today. Uh, you know, I, 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 I won't find you. I'll just give you a warning. Now, that's a really, really great thing, right? But it's a different thing from me demanding to the policeman, Hey, you know, I demand that you give me mercy. I demand that you let me go. I demand that you give me compassion. Because that's not possible, right? Because if I'm merciful to you, if I'm gracious to you, if I'm compassionate to you, that is for me to give you. It's not something that you can demand to me. I always remember one of the times when I was the most uh, relieved and thankful was uh, when I was studying in university, I was studying accountancy. I remember one particular accountancy exam was I think accountancy 2B or something. And I got my result back. 
And it was 48%. 48%. I still remember. 48%. Then beside, beside my, my, my 48%, it said, pass conceded. And I thought, oh, that's really good, right? Because that meant that I actually passed even though I didn't get more than 50% because they felt that, you know, for whatever reason, um, they were willing to be gracious and, and merciful to me because for whatever reason, they felt that I was okay, right? So that's what I mean, you see. What the Bible is saying here is that when someone gives you mercy, when someone gives you compassion, someone gives you grace, it is up to the person to give grace and you cannot demand grace. It's not something you work for or an effort that you have. It's like a gift. right? It's like someone giving you something. You can't demand a gift. So imagine, right, I, I, I came today and uh, I had... Uh, uh, I say for whatever reason, I, I want an iPhone 6 or whatever, right? And I decide to give it to... Uh, I don't know. Who do I give it to? Ah, I give it to Grace. Lah. Okay, I give it to Grace, right? I give it to Grace. Well, that's, that's for me to give, right? You all can't say to me, hey, I demand that you give it to me. I demand that you give me the iPhone 6 because it is a gift that I gave freely, right? And I think grace and compassion and mercy are along those lines. But then the problem then comes in verse 19, right? Because one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? Right? So you think about it, if God is so in control of the world and He controls who is saved and who is not, who He receives grace, who receives compassion, then, then why is there still judgment? Is it not fair as well? So imagine, right? Let's say, let's say for what? We kidnap Minkit. Okay, I kidnap Minkit. Okay. Okay, so because I kidnap Minkit, I say to Chime, okay, Chime, because I've kidnapped Minkit, I need you to go to the UOB bank to rob the bank. Okay? And then after you rob the bank for a million dollars, I want you to come back and then you give me the million dollars and then I'll release Minkit. You know, it's like one of those movies, right? Now, if the police catch us in the end, can she say that that the, can the can the judge say that Chime is guilty? No, right? Because in a sense, I I sort of we force Chime to do it, right? Because we we kidnap we kidnap Minkit, and that's the argument here, isn't it? It's sort of saying, look, if God is so powerful and God is the one who is choosing who to give grace, who to give mercy to, who to give compassion to, then how can God still judge us if we are so in control of God? Right, you know, if God's controlling everything, how can you blame me? Right, God made me do it. God showed one person grace, like uh, Isaac, and then for the other person, Ishmael, he didn't. Right, so whose fault is it? Can you really blame them? But then the argument then here is in verse twenty, right? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? What? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And what it's really trying to say here is that as as small and as insignificant we are, we have no right to question God on what God is doing. Right. So if you think of it, imagine you use clay, okay? So some of it you use for good purposes. Maybe you make some really fine china, some really elegant teapot. And then some of it you use to make the toilet bowl. 
Now, the, the clay that is used to make the toilet bowl can't then complain and say, hey, why did you use me to you know, be used in the toilet? You know, it's very smelly and dirty here. I want it to really be used as a teapot you know, to sit on the table and to be admired. Well, that's not really for us to, or the, the clay to actually complain to God. And that's what this passage is really saying. That ultimately, how God chooses, how God directs, is not for mankind to complain. You see, I remember reading a book by Billy Graham once before, which said actually God is not a cruel slave driver who is a bully, who uses brute force to coerce us into submission. He doesn't try to break our will, but woos us to himself so that we might offer ourselves freely to him. Now, when I read this sentence and I reflected on Romans chapter 9, actually this sentence is a bit dangerous, isn't it? Because it brings the choice, my choice, all down to me, right? It's like, I choose to be born again. I choose to offer myself to God. I choose to be saved. But actually, Romans 9 says that it's actually God who's at the center of our salvation. God is the one who chooses who to give grace to. God is the one who chooses who to have merciful to, to be merciful to. In fact, the way we should look at it is instead of being angry at God, what we need to know is that actually by seeing God's wrath, we should be thankful that we are saved. You see, look at what it says there in verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory? See, what He's saying here is that the right attitude that we are to have is not to be questioning God and saying, God, why didn't you save all these Jewish people? But rather, what we should be saying is, thank you God for saving me. See, you think about it again, uh, the driving uh, uh, ticket, traffic ticket illustration. Okay, imagine I'm driving on the road again. I get pulled over by the policeman. And the policeman says to me, Sir, Give me your driver's license and everything. He says, do you know you were driving 20 kilometers over the speed limit? And I say, uh, yeah, okay, we're on. No, 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 we're on. Right, maybe only 15, I thought it wasn't so fast. Then, then the, the, the policeman will say to me, okay, well, you know, uh, because you have this sticker at the back of your car, it says Jesus saves or something, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you compassion. I'm not going to book you, right? Just make sure you don't do it again. Should I then say to the policeman, hey, but... But what about all these other people that you didn't show compassion to? How come you didn't show compassion to, to my uncle or my grandfather? He got fined, you know, speeding, right? Why is it you didn't show compassion to all these people? But that's the wrong attitude, isn't it? Because what this passage is really saying is that if God shows His wrath to some, then those who receive mercy should actually give glory to God for His grace and mercy to them. You see, in a sense... What God is really doing is that by showing mercy to people, He is actually calling glory to Himself. Now, I think that for ourselves, we may find this a very, very hard concept to accept. Because you know why? It's like, uh, imagine if you're playing Monopoly at home, right? And then, you know, after the person 
And I, I hate playing Monopoly actually because Monopoly is a sort of game where once you start losing, it's this slippery slope. You know, it's like people buy those park lane and the other one. Every time you go past, you're just getting less and less money, right? And then the person is getting more and more gleeful and happy. Can you imagine you're like lost, right? And then you, this person jumps on the couch and says, you know, I won, I won, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best, right? Then you sort of think, well, you know, it's terrible, right, when people glorify themselves, right? Or imagine you come up to me one day, you say, you know, Pastor, that was a really good sermon on Sunday. You say, yeah, I think so too. It was an excellent exegesis. It was, you know, startling in its insight. It was really humorous and witty. In fact, I don't think you'll ever hear another better sermon like that for the rest of your life, right? Then you think, wow, this person, something wrong with him, right? But then actually, if you notice, God says that that is the appropriate behavior that we should give to him. Isn't it? Because he says, if we know that there are, there's, there's God's wrath, which is focused on other people, then for those who receive his mercy and his compassion, we should give glory to him. Instead of complaining and saying, oh, you know, it's really unfair, it's really unfair, we should actually be saying it's really, really great that we receive God's mercy and his compassion. And he says that right from the very beginning, he has already said that from the Gentiles, there will be people who are called, and from the book of Isaiah, there will be a remnant of Israel. So God is not being inconsistent in what he is doing here, but rather, God is actually saying that his promises are faithful. And what we need to do is to be truly thankful that God has, in his wisdom, in his grace, in his mercy, chosen us to be the ones who receive Compassion, mercy in Jesus Christ. I always remember, you know, the last uh, PAP, uh, not PAP elections, the last elections, right? I remember the PAP, uh, the PAP guy, is it the Lim Sui Say, right? Remember Lim Sui Say? He caused a bit of a stir because um, he was saying that, you know, my, 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 my great grandfather or something lived in China, you know, and then he moved from China to Malaysia. All right, did you all remember the guy's limbs he said? And then, and then, you know, his father moved from, from, from Malaysia to Singapore, right? No, Heng, ah, he said. Do you remember that? So, you know what Heng is, right? Lucky, right? Lucky, ah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, in a way, we are, we are to have that same attitude, right? I mean, if God shows us mercy, if God shows us compassion, if God allows us to be chosen, according to his promises, then our attitude should be, hang her, right? Lucky he chose me, right? Not because I'm better, not because I'm smarter or better looking, but because God in his grace and his mercy has chosen us. So I think that when we look at this passage, when we think about the sovereignty of God in choosing people, the attitude should not be anger at God. It shouldn't be questioning the justness of God. It shouldn't be even questioning uh, like the, 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 whether people should be judged at all. It should actually be seeing that all of our salvation comes because of God's promises and God's will and God's grace and mercy. And our attitude should be, hang on, right? We're really thankful that, that we are the ones who are saved and give glory to God's grace and mercy instead. Now, I think that as we come to this passage it is really, really difficult to sometimes accept that. You think, oh, how can God be so powerful and do all these things? And 
we can be like the Indian man that I talked about in the beginning of my sermon and be angry at God and say, I don't like this sort of God. This is not the sort of God I signed up for. But this is the sort of God that He is, right? He's a God who gives grace and mercy to those He chooses. And He wants glory for His grace and mercy. And I think that if we see that God somehow, for whatever reason, has chosen us, then we should be really joyful and thankful because it is nothing that we have done, but it's everything that God has done is grace and mercy and has chosen us instead. Okay, anybody have any questions? Very easy passage, right? 